Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Mignel, and this is a part of my 29 Days of Magic series, where I interview an awesome black woman today for 29 days during Black History Month. And this episode, I am delighted to have Nicole Sampson, who's director of D&I at RAP. Uh, she's got an amazing story. You're going to love her. Take a listen. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Laura. Delighted to have you on. Delighted to be here. It is an honor, my friend. Aw, thank you, girl. You know it is. Uh, so, uh, since you actually know all about the series, because you told me, um, you know what the first question is. And so I am very curious to hear what your answer is going to be. So, uh, Nicole, what was your first job? I was a preschool aide, like a school aide. My younger sisters went to a preschool in my town, and I used to volunteer after school as a teacher's aide. Uh, And how annoying and traumatizing was that job? Let me tell you something. I have a story that I tell people frequently because I think actually now that I think about it, it probably set the tone for what I do for a living. I told this very cute Caucasian blonde hair, blue eyed uh, three-year-old to please stop doing something because he was being destructive. And he looked at me in the face and he said, I don't have to listen to brown people. I'm sorry, what? You heard me. You heard me. Okay. And it's funny because I don't think I've ever made the connection until right now about what, how that... This explains what you do now. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it explains so much because I had to, you know, obviously report it, had a conversation with the parents afterwards who were like, we have no idea where he learned this. Um, Sp- I, I insert insert <laughs> Spider-Man meme. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So yes, it was traumatizing in a lot of ways. How I old were you? I was 14. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this explains everything. It really does. It really does. <laughs> New topic for therapy next week. Seriously, because <laughs> girl. <laughs> but wow. other than that... Other than that, it was a joyful yet chaotic experience. Yeah, I'm always amazed at people who work with kids as their first job. I'm like, I, God bless. (laughs) 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 Would that be me? I feel that. I feel that. It's like, I I always, I'm a firm believer in what y'all have to say, but like, would be me? Uh, Okay, so... And this is is a really easy segue. So you go from that job to what you do now. Tell me about that journey. So this has been a really interesting journey. I actually was a career-long paralegal prior to being in this position. So I worked in big law for 16, 17 years Um, as a paralegal. I worked in commercial litigation. I did intellectual property law. I did employment law. I did mergers and acquisitions, corporate securities work. And then one day I got a phone call 
uh, from a recruiter who said, do you like the movies? And I said, yeah, I love going to the movies. And she said, well, there is an in-house paralegal position at a company called Screen Vision, which is a company that acts as an intermediary between movie theaters and advertisers to create that fun little pre-show that you go to the movies and watch before you get to your, uh, before you actually watch the movie. And uh, that introduced me to the world of being in-house. That means not in a law firm. And uh, after that, I hopped around a little bit and eventually got a call from a recruiter at Omnicom. And that was literally almost four years to the day that I started as an in-house paralegal for the Omnicom Health Group, um, which if you think of the timing of that, that was a month before the pandemic. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we were thrust into the world of, you know, the world is burning even more than usual. We're locked down. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And I was irrevocably broken. I just felt something inside me shift and I knew that I was never going to be the same. And I realized that because of my position as a paralegal, my exposure was to senior leadership. And I realized that I had gained their trust and that I could help to usher in some of the things that Black talent needed um, because I had a captive audience. And so I collected six other Black executives from around that network at the time. And we went to our senior leadership and we made a pretty compelling story about where we were, where we needed to go, and how we were going to help them get there. And simultaneously, I founded the Black Collective, which was the first Black talent resource group at Omnicom Health Group. And through that work, I raised my hand when the formation of Black Together, Omnicom's first global Black ERG, was started and Emily Graham was looking for leadership to lead that ERG. And through my work with the ERG, I got to have some exposure to some of the conversations that were happening around Omnicom about how to use the ERGs as vehicles for recruitment. I said some interesting things in a meeting, as I'm known to do from time to time. And my now head of TA recognized I should know this woman. We struck up a friendship. And so when the position was available at RAP for the director of DEI, I was top of mind. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. So from parallel to DI to executive, that is quite the flip. What do you think has been the biggest difference in the roles that you've had and what's the thing that's most similar? That's really interesting. So the biggest difference is now I get to use the part of my brain that is a strategist, that likes to create community, that is a designer. When I was a paralegal, it was very much around systems. I had to be perfect in the sense of very technical review of contracts and that kind of thing. And so although I got to be very good at it, it was a lot of work to be really good at that. So that's a huge difference that I just get to use different parts of my brain. But what's the same is having to influence in the sense that, you know, I've always been a connector. So sometimes people look at the legal department as scary. And now 
I'm in the D&I role where some people find that scary. And so I have to be very good and strategic about bringing people along, whether that's improving a business process and the way that we're reviewing contracts and and trying to make sure that every department has what they need and that there is consistency there. And it's the same thing in my DE&I work now where I have to bring my leadership team along with me. I have to bring the agency along with me. I have to really know my stakeholders well. And that was consistent across both roles. Awesome. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's it's like, again, when you pick your first job, and when I always say this with folks, is whatever people always like mention as their first job always plays back to what their current job is in some way, shape, or form, and how it somehow shapes a memory in your mind, and that's why it comes to mind when you bring it up. And it sounds to me that, like, those lessons you learned very early on where it's just like, hold up, this is some foolishness, um, got you where you are today because you carried it through your paralegal work and all the way now through your DNI work. Yes, and it is some foolishness. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to lie, there's always some foolishness. Yes. Um, so obviously, it's Black History Month. And obviously, the words G, E, and I, to some people who are idiots, think is a bad word, is terrible, and is un- and so therefore G, E, and I is under attack. What do you have to say about this? I just want to say for the record that G, E, and I is not dead. It will never be dead. Um, I do think that, look, the words diversity, equity, and inclusion have absolutely been radicalized. They've been made to be this big, scary thing about, you know, some people feel that they're going to be displaced. They feel like people are being offered positions that they don't deserve because of a quota. And I just want to completely eradicate all thought in that way. Because when I think of DEI, I think of our humanity. And I think that we have to understand that we are all diverse. None of us have the same story. And I think the lens through which they're looking at that diversity was very much through a gender, sexual orientation, racial lens. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because Laura, both you and I are Black women, but we both have different experiences, which then make us diverse. So the need for DEI is never going to go away because our workforces are never going to be homogenous. And that is beyond um, the boxes that we click on that cute little demographic surveys that we take um, when we're applying for jobs. It goes way beyond that. It. I read an article in Built In that says that there are 39 different levels of diversity in terms of the differences in us in the workforce. And that's never going to go away. And so my mission as a DEI practitioner is to enlighten people of their own humanity, giving them resources to understand who they are and to help them see a way forward for themselves so that they can actually care about the person sitting next to them because they have some room and some tools for how to do that. So I just 
you know, I understand that people couldn't be afraid of what they think DEI means, but I just I implore people to put down what they think the definition is and to actually just focus on humanity. Well, that's almost the holy grail of this is just be damn human. I, it's so annoying to me on so many levels. Um, so obviously, how do you feel about all this BS that's gone on? I think it goes back to what I said, that people don't really understand themselves and therefore they are fearful. And, you know, I think it's sad to me to see some of the conversations that I see happening in multiple spheres, right? Because you can look at, I don't remember the name of the company, nor do I want to name check them, but they are systematically taking down efforts in different um, spheres of influence that are trying to do good. And it's like, listen, do you know what you could do if you put that energy towards something good? Like, the world is burning. Don't y'all have something else to do? (laughs) So, you know, it's just frustrating because I see so many places where if we were actually moving together in the same direction, that we could really have an impact on people's real experiences. I mean, we're talking about inflation and, you know, can you put the efforts towards that? I don't know. You know, like where are the firms fighting against the prices that we're paying at the grocery store? You know, so I just I I would implore people that feel like it's their mission to dismantle DEI. Like, what are you really saying? What are you really doing? Because the fabric of America was built on immigrants. So I, I'm just really confused about what we're saying now. Because none of us are indigenous to this country except for Native Americans. Full stop. So what are we really talking about? And it's just, it's frustrating to me. Um, Anyone who's listening to this who hasn't gone yet to see Ava DuVernay's beautiful film, Origin, about Isabel Wilkerson's incredible, incredible book, which you must read, called Cast, um, I implore you to do so because I really genuinely think that looking at it through a historical and um, an educational lens can take some of that fear away and we can actually look at the systems that we've all been buying into. It's so, it, I mean, cast is incredible. Um, and I'm, I'm going to see Origin this weekend, actually. Um, but I've seen enough of the clips to be like, I think that's required viewing for every school classroom um, because everything I've seen so far and, and just the clips online, like you need to understand where this came from. Yes. Like I you will, really, really do. I will give you a trigger warning though, that I was not in the emotional place to go see the film at first. So steal yourself up. I I went in completely not knowing what was coming and, you know, just to, this is not a spoiler in any way because it's literally in the opening, but it opens with Trayvon Martin. And so I was not necessarily prepared for where we were going, but what a beautiful film, an incredible emotional ride, and just seeing what was happening in the background of Miss Wilkerson's life as she was making this historical game changer of a book is is incredible. and her resilience is beyond admirable and we do not deserve her, but 10 out of 10 viewing. And I hope that you and I get to discuss your thoughts once you've seen it. Not without question. You know, I will. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Because, yeah, it. I, I think the issue that I have with so many people is that you were all ready for George Floyd in 2020 um, and saying you want to support, you put your little black squares up, and now you're banning Amanda Gorman's book. Mm-hmm. And, it's fear. And, you know, the fear is unfounded. I I don't understand why they really think like, the, that you, just because how you treat us if we somehow get some degree of power, we're going to do that to you. That's that fear because that's what they know. They know a society that they help to shape that does that, that does not lift each other up, that does want to take and hold. And if you don't know anything else beyond that, of course you're afraid of that because you know what you would do in that position because of what you are doing. And so that's why it goes back to my theory about maybe if I can get people to just give a damn about themselves, about the world around them, that we can change some of this. Because it's nauseating. It really is. I mean, the level of stupidity of don't say gay and banning books and, you know, a certain person who owns a social media platform saying DEI is terrible and blah, it's like, it is destroying people. It's like, really? Like, everything is just based on merit here? You live on a planet where everything's based on merit? Really? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because like, that's the conversation up. that we're not having about what what is happening in the rooms where people are being elevated and the power is held we don't talk about what a small club that is and what happens and that you absolutely benefited from someone sponsoring you and speaking your name in a room you weren't in and if you think you got where you are on your own merit that is just patently untrue it's really dumb and i would love for people to just have better brain cells about this it's this is not complicated it's really not necessary and honestly it just it's just so detrimental because i think you know it kind of goes back to why that person was president for four years because he unleashed something that i think we all knew was underneath the surface um but once it got let out, it's very hard to get that back in the get back back underneath the the sewers again. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm gonna say I don't even think it was necessarily him. I think he was a byproduct of uh, some people's reaction to President Obama being elected. I think it really broke some people's brains that a black man was president of the United States, and I think that person being nominated after him and elected after him was a direct result of that. And, you know, the truth is, is that the minority voice, and they are in the minority, let's be clear, where what they are getting right is that they have a message and they are sticking to it. (laughs) And so we need to lift our voices louder and more cohesively in order to combat that. And I I don't know if we're all using our voices in the same direction in the way that they are. Yeah, it's like black people, everybody else, bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that's basically what it is. And because mm-hmm. there's so many of us and so many different nuances, you know, you've got black, white, gay, straight, LGBTQIA plus 
And then you've got white women, you've got black women, you've got indigenous people. Because there's so many fiefdoms, it's hard to get everyone saying the same, you know, sing the same song from the hymnal. Mm-hmm. And and there's just basically, again, if you're not white, you're bad. It's, it's a little bit, that's basically what it is. That's what's on the talking points sheet. That's it. <laughs> that's basically what it is. And mm-hmm. everything else that all oh, the oh they're grooming people. Then you find that they have like all these evil like you know grooming things that they've done. If they're they're saying that you know gay people are the end of the world and it's like well they're all in the closet. Um, mm-hmm. Or they somebody has a black girlfriend or a mm-hmm. secret black child. And you're like well clearly there was some black person you liked. So the hypocrisy that I find about amongst it all, it's just exhausting. And I, it's not my daily job, and I feel exhausted by it. So how are you? I take radical self-care of myself, Laura, because, you know, the numbers don't lie in terms of the usual tenure for people in a role like mine. That's usually two to five years max because it is exhausting. And to add a layer to that, I'm a mom of three kids, a single mom at that with a uh, parallel parenting relationship with my ex-husband. And so I have people that need me every day in multiple capacities. And if I don't take really good care of myself, I just am unable to show up. So uh, last year I went on a mission to love myself more than I've ever loved myself my entire life. And- Yeah. And I have to say that, you know, dating myself for the last year has been one of the most joyful experiences of my life because I'm rediscovering what makes me happy outside of the people that need me. That's my children. That's work. That's my friends. That's my family. All the different hats we wear. And I no longer feel bad about calling myself selfish. I absolutely am. You know why? Because the asks never stop coming. If I'm having a bad day, I'm still getting 10 people that need me that day. And my kids are still looking at me like, what is for dinner? Can you come play with us? We need to get washed up, right? Like it just does not stop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love to just take myself on fun experiences. I went to see, SZA is my favorite artist and I went to go see her twice by myself. Um, when she was here in October. Um, And, you know, I used to miss out on things because I was afraid of doing them alone. And I'm no longer afraid of being alone. So we have fun over here. So if you ever want to join me for an adventure, let me know. (laughs) I I am always on for adventure when I'm in town, Um, which is not often. Not often. (laughs) (laughs) But I I might show up and be like, hey, Nicole, I'm down. What's going? What's good? I love that you said that you fell in love with yourself in the past year, what was the, what was the moment that you knew that you were you know, falling back in love with yourself? That I could look myself in the mirror when I was doing my mirror affirmations and I didn't look away when I said, I love you. It didn't feel false anymore. It didn't feel like something I was forcing myself to do. Like I genuinely meant it. I could genuinely look at myself and say, I love you the way that I would say it to my children or to my friends or my mom. And I've been working, so I've been separated for three years, and um, that process was a real process of undoing 
examining and rebuilding. And so the rebuilding has been tremendous because I've really gotten to know myself and I'm like, wait, I'm a really dope person. Like I would kick it with me. (laughs) And that just felt so good. I, I just stopped apologizing. I stopped feeling like I needed to shrink myself in order to be acceptable to someone and understanding in the small moments um, that I was just genuinely, genuinely happy with who I am, how I'm showing up, being unapologetically myself and being okay with being alone. I think my search for validation previously always kept me in this constant struggle of, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I pouring out enough? And now I understand that just me showing up is more than enough. I love that. And so true. I think we, again, we don't, re- we often, it's especially, you know, post COVID universe. I think everyone's just like, how do I fall back in love with myself? Cause like, we don't know ourselves anymore cause we've all changed so drastically in the last four years. Like who we were on February 1st, 2020 is not who we are on February 1st, 2024. Like, I'm grateful for that. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and yes. Um, but it's very much that we've all gone through such a dramatic change and so much trauma that it's hard oftentimes to like, you know, wrap your arms around it like it still it blows my mind that it's 2024 I'm like really like where did the time go I it's it's surreal but I will say that you know one of the things that really helped me was discovering meditation because I needed to find a way to come back to myself so you're right the world does not look the same we are not the same um and sometimes it's really difficult to live in that And if you don't have a way to return to yourself, you can get lost in that. And so, you know, now I have the superpower of being able to activate my third eye and know how to react to things better and know how to quiet my mind and, you know, be still. That is something I learned how to do. Be still. Um, So I think, you know, my meditation practice, I do it every day. It's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I pray and I meditate. Um, I go to bed to sleep meditations. That is a, has been a game changer for me. Um, I listen to different ones depending on what I need that night. I think the one tonight will be a rest <laughs> meditation. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. And I just think, you know, finding ways to return to yourself, whatever that looks like for you. That could be through, you know, going in nature and putting your feet in some grass. I'm a beach girl. I live by the Jersey shore. So going to the beach is my happy place. And I do that as often as humanly possible. And, you know, just finding ways, small ways to reconnect with the universe, ground myself, they call it, and return back to myself. That's That's been the key to being able to continue to show up in a world that is literally burning around us. I was gonna say the world is kind of burning. Uh, you're like, um, not sure how we'll survive this, but we do. We do. Every, we we find our way. 
When you look back on all the things that you've done, what do you think you tell 18-year-old Nicole? Whew, how much time do we have? We don't have enough time for that. I would say leave that leave that boy alone. <laughs> <laughs> leave no, him alone, sis. Um, sorry to my high school boyfriend. Um, yes, I would say leave him alone. I would say love yourself unequivocally. I would say you are more gifted than you give yourself credit for and lean into those gifts. I would say everything that you used to love doing when you were a little girl, that's what your life looks like now. Um, I was definitely the fourth grader who was, you know, leading revolutions and and staging walkouts when I was protesting, you know, some lunch line um, rules. Yes, injustice, you know. Um, So I would just say, you know, lean into the things that make you you. I would give her the term for who she is, which I didn't have a term for until my executive sponsor introduced it to me, which is multi-potentialite. And I would say it is okay that you are good at many things, lean into all of them, lean into joy. And I would say spend more time with your dad because you're going to lose him soon. And I would say you're going to be just fine. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's 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 such beautiful, beautiful advice. Leave that boy alone. Uh, <laughs> Leave him alone. We're, you know who we're talking to. We're talking to you. Leave him alone. <laughs> perfect, perfect, and more perfect. Um, I mean, I could just talk to you for hours. Um, but I have one last question for you. Do you have a give and ask of the audience? I want to ask for you to think about how you are showing up. And I want you to truly think of where you can be of service because that is the key to all things. If we act in service, So I implore you to look around, think about where you're spending your time and think about where you could be spending some more time and being of service. And my give is, I'm just sending so much love and light. As we've discussed a few times, the world is a really, really hard place. And I just want you to know that you matter, that we love you and you're going to be okay. Oh, you're just wonderful, and you're you're a warm hug, Nicole. Thank you so much. Walking uh, sunshine over here, Laura. Thank you. I, I mean, it's <laughs> rain and sunshine. It's all fake. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but you are just a delight and so wonderful. And keep putting up the good fight. I, we, everyone has your back. Um, the work you do matters. Um, you know, part of the reason I do 29 Days of Magic now in its fourth year is because I need to highlight the people who are doing the work, not just people who are talking about it, but people who are in it every single day and, um, and making sure that you get that sunshine and, and your flowers because it's well-deserved. So thank you so much for being part of 29 Days of Magic. Um, it was a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Laura, and just appreciate you and this beautiful platform you've created 
And I'm feeling all of that love. Appreciate you so much. Awesome. So we'll put all the details in the show notes so you can reach out to Nicole and send her more love and sunshine about how amazing she is and all the good words that she's up to on a daily basis. And thank you so much for joining us on 29 Days of Magic as part of the Reset Podcast. And that is our show. <laughs>